0: Romans chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 5 is where we'll be this morning. And if this handout serves you to take notes on or to take home and discuss it's for the purposes of you being able to think about these things throughout the week, in particular, if you're looking for something to help you with your family devotions, these kinds of things begin to help you ask questions of yourselves and then formulate them in a way that you can ask your your children as well if god has redeemed me from sin and giving me and has given me his holy spirit to sanctify me and give me strength against sin why do i go on sinning if god has redeemed me from sin and given me his holy spirit to sanctify me and give me strength against against sin why do I go on sinning? This question has plagued me throughout my life of faith. In my lowest moments, it has brought me despair. It has even darkened the edges of my brightest times. That's the opening comment of Chris Slingard in his book, The Enemy Within. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, you find yourself asking the same kinds of questions why am i plagued with this indwelling sin i i i feel like i have an an enemy within and he does something very appropriate he tells a, a story that i think most of us whether you're a child or an adult can appreciate he says this in his opening chapter all i wanted to do was surprise my wife that's a that's a tough thing to do right there Since we had moved into our new house almost a year ago, the refrigerator door handle had been on the wrong side. I had put off moving it because of my clumsiness with mechanical things. I can particularly appreciate this guy's story. But on this Thursday afternoon, while my wife was at work, I was set to redeem myself and right the wrong. I was halfway through the job. I had the refrigerator and the freezer doors off, and I wanted to get them back on as soon as I could so nothing would spoil I was at a pivotal step of swapping the hinges from the right side of the refrigerator to the left side. When I realized that each hinge was fastened by two Torx screws. Two lousy Torx screws. There's only one tool in the universe that can safely remove a Torx screw. That's a Torx socket. And I didn't have a Torx socket. Right then, my three boys decided to move their traveling sibling rivalry rivalry show into the middle of my angst. I lost it. I let them have it, though they didn't deserve it. They stared at me as if I were a monster from Alpha Centauri while I ranted in an unknown tongue. At mid fit, I had an out of body experience. I saw my contorted red face screaming at my charming boys and knew at once I was doing something evil. So I stopped and asked their forgiveness, right? Wrong. Something had control of me. It was as if an alien had invaded my body and was forcing me to do its bidding. It was long after they had fled from my wrath before I recovered my sanity and my consciousness and humbled myself before them in groveling apologies. I spent the next several weeks feeling like a whipped puppy. Was I really that wicked? How could I hurt my children like that? Had I done irreparable harm, would they forgive me? Would God forgive me? Anything like that ever happen to you? And all the children are going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever had that feeling like, like something's invaded your body and, and you know the right thing to do and you just can't do it? Lungard pursued the answer to his question and also the answer to his actions about the power of sin. And in his pursuit, he came across the writings of an old Puritan named John Owen. John Owen is somebody who lived 300 years ago. He was part of a Puritan movement in England. And some have called him the greatest theologian who's ever written in the English language. Owen thought deeply about the very issues that Lungard was thinking about in his book. And Owen writes this in his book called The Mortification of Sin. That's a great, that's a $10 word as we talked about in Sunday school class. The mortification. If you're mortified at something, you feel like you're going to be put to death. A mortician is somebody who takes care of those who are dead. So the mortification of sin, John Owen is talking about how is it that you put to death your sin? And this quote is printed on the front of your bulletin. Suppose a man to be a true believer and yet finds in in himself a powerful indwelling sin, leading him captive to the law of it. Consuming his heart with trouble, perplexing his thoughts, weakening his soul as to the duties of communion with God, disquieting him as to peace, and perhaps defiling his conscience, and exposing him to hardening through the deceitfulness of sin. What shall he do? What shall he take and insist on for the mortification of this sin, lust, distemper, or corruption? We might find some consolation that this kind of question was not only plaguing Lungard, it wasn't just plaguing John Owen. Apparently, from our text in Romans 7, it was something that was plaguing even the Apostle Paul. He says this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. So I find this law at work within me when I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. So we're in this season of Lent. This is uh, if you're not familiar with the Christian calendar, it's the 40 days before Easter. And during the 40 days... We're particularly focused on our brokenness because we're moving towards the cross. And the answer to our brokenness is the brokenness of Jesus Christ. And so we have this pottery up here. We're like pots. We're clay pots. We're easily broken and we're broken and we need somebody to come back and put us together. And we're going to see that that's Christ. But as we go through these 40 days, these four or five weeks here, we want to take a look at and we're going to use the Lundgard book as an avenue and the Bible as an avenue to look at and take a long look at how sin works. The power of sin, and then how do we begin to conquer it or put it to death? Or as Owen would say, how would we mortify our sin? Well, we can't really make this our starting point, so I want to go backwards a little bit this this Sunday. We can't just say we want to learn how to put our sin to death. We want to begin to just change our actions, our attitudes. That's not really the best place to start. That would be sort of like saying if you were wanting to learn how to swim, somebody took you in a boat three miles offshore, dumped you out into the open ocean and said, you know, if you just kick your legs and swing your arms enough, I'm sure you make it there. And no matter how hard you may try in that effort and how many few yards you would get, there's no way without understanding the swimming stroke that you'd have any hope of getting there. And so we need to go back to the beginnings or or a foundation so we can make some headway in dealing with our sin. So this is going to be a helpful reminder if you're a believer here, if you're somebody who's trying to seek out the answers, it's going to be helpful to go back and see how we've arrived to the cross. And, of course, we have all kinds of young people and new believers in our midst that it's helpful to begin to reorient ourselves to what's happening in the story of the Bible. So if you would. Uh, go back to Genesis 1 and 2, not necessarily in the Bible, but just in your mind and remember the stories that are happening back there. If you were to read Genesis 1 and 2, what you would see, and no surprise to most of us, is that creation was established by the Word of God. Remember how Lewis talks about it in The Magician's Nephew when Aslan comes and the creation happens? Remember what Aslan is doing? He's singing. It's such a powerful moment of creation. What his picture is that God sings creation into being. He doesn't just state it. He sings it and creation happens. Everything is formed out of God's word. He takes a certain delight and pleasure in his creation. Again, in these first chapters, we'd understand that Humanity was created uniquely in the image of God. Nothing else was created in the same way, which at least means this. To be truly human requires a special relationship with God. In order to be human, we must have and maintain this special relationship with God. God's word governs. God's word defines our relationship with him. God's word defines our relationship with the world in Genesis three. If you were to turn to the next chapter, you would see that sin enters the world. And what's the very first thing that happens in Genesis three, chapter one? The serpent comes and what does he say? The very first thing that happens is doubt is cast on the credentials of God's Word. Nothing had ever been thought of before, but now here in Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent comes to Eve and says this, did God really say? And he begins to cast a shadow over God's Word, the Word that had created, the Word that defined, the Word that governed all relationships. And we would say here, buried in this statement, maybe the deception of this statement is an assumption. And it's an assumption that Eve, I don't think, had ever even considered up until this point. And that was, was God's Word, it's not that God's Word just needed to be obeyed. God's Word needed to be analyzed. God's Word needed to be evaluated. And if God's word needed to be analyzed and evaluated, then it's going to have to have a standard by which it's analyzed or evaluated. And then that standard is then going to be greater than the word itself that God gave. Let me go back and say that because I really want you to see this. The first thing that happens in Genesis chapter three, verse one, is that God's word begins to have a shadow cast on it. Eve now begins to analyze and evaluate God's word instead of just obey it. And because she's analyzing and not obeying, she has to create another standard by which to judge the word of God. And that standard is going to be greater than God's own word. And who is that standard? Humanity. Eve sets herself up, Adam sets himself up, and we have set ourselves up as the standard by which we measure God's word. We become the standard and God's word has to bump up against us and we decide what we like and what we don't like about God's word. An incredible reversal has taken place. An incredible exchange takes place here in Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now, let's just say this sounds kind of fuzzy. You're 12 or 14 or you're 35, and it just seems to be I can't quite grasp this. Let's let's take an illustration that I thought of that I think everybody can appreciate. You're a student and you're taking in an exam. You hand in the exam and there is a standard by which your exam is measured by. It's not another student's exam. So that's why if you're a student, you come home and you say, well, yes, so-and-so made such and such. And what do your parents say? I don't care what so-and-so made. Why don't they care? Because another student in your class isn't the standard by which you're being measured against. You're being measured against a certain standard, and that standard is the teacher. She has a key. She's written out her words, the answers to the questions that she's asked you. And she's putting your test on top of her test and saying, you've got to get these words right in order to get a good grade. Now, let's say by chance you do poorly on the exam. What's a typical first reaction by a student who does poorly on an exam? Teachers know. The test is unfair. You see, you see what see what happens? The typical first reaction by the student isn't to question themselves. It's never to question their study habits, never consider that they might have gotten something wrong. The first thing a typical student does is say the teacher's unfair. She was unreasonable. You won't believe the kinds of questions she asked or the kinds of thorough knowledge that she might have wanted to answer the question. And what they mean by that, students, when you say that about your teacher, what you mean by that, the underlying assumption is that you can't trust the teacher. Who can you trust? You can trust me, the student. You see what happens? The same reversal that happens in school every week. Even if you're in seminary, I saw this happen. The first thing that happens is that you're going to challenge the authority of the teacher and say, well, you know what? The teacher just can't be trusted. Guess who can be trusted? The student can be trusted. You can trust me. I'm going to have the right answers. And you make up your own key and you live by your own standard. And now you judge the teacher or you and I judge the creator by the standard that we create for ourselves. So in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve do the unthinkable. They decide God can't be trusted. The, crea- the creature takes tries to take over the power of the Creator. One commentator reads this and asks this question: "After the fall, why do you think Adam and Eve covered their sexual organs? Was it not to hide from God or from themselves or from each other the reminder that they cannot create, they can only procreate? They knew that they really weren't creators, and so they began to hide the fact from God as if they could or hide it from themselves or hide it from each other, that we're not really creators, we're creatures. But we want to hide that from God and we want to hide it from each other. And one of the tragic results of sin, of our trying to become something we could never be, of our trying to become God, is that we lost our special relationship with God and therefore we lost what it meant to be truly human. Listen to the Bible's painful but accurate description now of mankind apart from God. For since the creation of the world, God's visible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like man, birds, animals, reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, greed, evil and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they only continue to do these things and also approve of those who practice them. I want you to see and appreciate what the Bible says on the distance that we have fallen away from what we were originally intended to be. You and I, apart from the relationship with God, are no longer just human. We're less than human. People without a right relationship with God are no longer human. They're less than human. They lost that humanity in Genesis chapter 3. And that causes unknown evils that you have experienced and we've seen in our world. Unfortunately, another result of this separation from God is a blinding effect. Sin blinds us from our own condition. And so we say, and some of you no doubt are saying right now, I'm just not that bad off. I know some people have some of those things, but I'm not like that, Paul. I'm better than that. Sin has that kind of blinding effect. It makes you think you're in a better condition than you actually are. You look and say, oh, I need help. Or the world needs help. But you don't look at it in horror like God looks at it. After the fall in Genesis 3, God comes back. He's walking in the garden. And the first thing he says is what? Adam. Where are you? I mean, did the all knowing God lose count of his creation and say, I, I'm looking around here. Golly, gee, he's pretty good at hide and go seek. I just can't find him. Did he not know where Adam was? No. Adam had no idea where Adam was. He had no clue what he had had caused for all of creation. And God comes back and says, Adam, Adam, don't be blinded by this sin. Do you know the condition of your soul? I want you to know if you know it. Because sin has a blinding effect. It makes you believe that you're not as in bad condition as you really are. And we see a hundred examples through the Bible like this. One more from Genesis 32. God is wrestling with Jacob. You remember this event? God's wrestling with Jacob and Jacob wants a blessing and the sun is rising. And Jacob says, give me a blessing. And of all the things the person he was wrestling with, this divine figure could ask Jacob, what does he say? Jacob. What is your name? I mean, did did the creator not remember the name of the creation? No. What does Jacob's name mean? Deceiver. Supplanter. Do you remember what happened? He tried to deceive his earthly father into a blessing. And now his heavenly father is looking at him and he's saying, do you know who you are? Do you know your real name? Or have you been fooled into thinking that you're not so bad that maybe nobody's really seen what you thought or seen what you've done? Adam, where are you? Jacob, what's your name? You. You. Do you know where you are without God? Do you know what your real identity is apart from God? Do you realize that apart from God, you and I, we're no longer even human? We're less than that. Do you know the effect of sin in your life? It's operating just the same as it did with Adam. It's operating just the same as it did with Jacob. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. There's great news on the horizon. And you see just a little slice of it in these two pictures. Instead of God seeing Adam and knowing where he is, and out of all justice coming in and crushing the creation, what does God do? He comes for the creation. He doesn't come to crush it. He comes walking towards it. And he's, he's got his arms open to a relationship with Adam. Instead of wrestling with Jacob and just wrenching him down and saying, I'm just going to let you waste away. What does he do? He wrestles with Jacob. He wants Jacob to see himself and see God Almighty. The good news is that the first step in dealing with our sin, my sin and yours is taken not by us. God is not demanding that you and I clean ourselves up and get on the right track. He knows that can never happen. Praise the Lord. He comes walking for you, even though you're hiding and you're deceiving yourself. He asks nothing of you. He's coming in grace alone. And you see the shadow of it in these passages in Genesis, and you see this full flowering in the person of Christ. And that's why you read these stunning, spectacular verses from 2 Corinthians 5. God reconciled. He's changing your status. It, we're no longer under humanity. We're He's changing our status. He's not counting your sins against you. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. The great exchange that happened back in Genesis chapter three is reversing here in second Corinthians and in the Gospels. And God's making the exchange himself. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. God is the first step so that we might have a special relationship with him again. And we might be human. We might be all of what he meant us to be. Not that we would become God, but that we would be restored to our humanity and be his creature made in his image, operating underneath the work and the word that he has given us. That's why you see these descriptions in the Bible. Jesus says you must be born again. Paul says, if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. Ezekiel says this in, in chapter 36, I give you a new heart. I put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful and keep my laws. Do you see what happened? A tremendous reversal has taken place on the cross. Jesus has taken our sins for us. And he has defeated that once and for all. And now he has planted his spirit in you. And now because of that, because of God's spirit planted in you, you and I now have a chance to defeat sin. Now, here's a good question. If you're a Christian, you understand that sin hasn't been dealt with A knockout blow in your life. And if it has, just would you see me afterwards? Because I'd love for you to write a book about it and I'll read it. But if you're anything like me, you've noticed sin still keeps dwelling in my life and I still have to keep fighting with it. Why do you think that God just didn't deal it one big knockout blow? Why did he give you a spirit, his spirit? That now, for the rest of your life, you can wrestle with that. And you, you, you begin to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Why do you think he did it that way? Well, I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to let you chew on that. How about that? The first step, the step that we have to have firmly planted in our minds is that God has dealt with our sin on the cross. He's made this tremendous exchange. He he now gives us the Holy Spirit. And until we meet him face to face, when finally we don't have to fight sin any longer. I mean, if there's one thing I'm looking forward to in heaven. Is I don't have to fight my sin anymore. I am going to be ready to lay down the sword. I don't want to fight against your sin or the sin of the world. But I know I just don't want to fight my sin anymore. And when we see him face to face, we will be whiter than snow. That's the good news. And if we don't understand the good news that Christ has come, he's living in you, he's active, he's going to help you now by your effort to put to death the misdeeds of the body. If you don't understand what he's done first, then you will walk away saying, here's a list of things I've got to stop doing. And here's a list of things I've got to start doing. And that's a prison. That is a prison. Prison. That's religion. That's basically the fundamental understanding of all other world religions. And this is what makes Christianity different. He has become sin for us. So if you're a seeker here, you're somebody who's asking questions, I want to ask you, do you know what your name is? Do you know where you are? Do you really understand your real standing before a holy God? He's not measuring you against me. He's not measuring you against your rotten neighbor. He's not measuring you against your ruthless boss. He's not measuring you against a suicide bomber. He's measuring you against himself. He's the standard. Do you understand where you are? Do you understand your real identity? If you're a believer, praise the Lord. And what a great day for communion. To remember. To say, what is it that he did? Something that I didn't deserve. He came and he said, I'm going to make a new covenant. See, you blew the first covenant in the garden. But I'm making a new covenant. And I'm coming for you. I know you don't want me. I know you'd rather hide. But I'm coming for you anyway. He not only gave his blood, but he gave his body. This is my body. This is the the bread of life. You see, if you don't have this bread, what don't you have? You don't have life. Life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, there's a great message here. That the enemy would do everything he could to persuade people into not believing. Or to not even caring about. Or to seeing it less than what it really is. We're just like the students. Our first reaction is not to question ourselves, is to question you. Why are you doing it this way? Why are you operating this way? Why didn't you show up right now in this way according to my standard? God, forgive us for thinking that. Thank you that you came and you operated according to your unconditional love towards us.